2: And I'm Ann Rising.
1: Knowing and understanding who we are is the vital part of being able to share the real gifts we have with the world. Many people can find that understanding through life experience and personal development work. But for some, the answers lay elsewhere.
2: Becca Lori Hector was diagnosed on the autism spectrum as an adult and has since become an active autism advocate, consultant, speaker, and author. With a focus on autistic quality of life, her work includes autism and neurodiversity consulting, public speaking engagements, a monthly newsletter called Monthly Musings, and a weekly YouTube news show called Neurodiversity Newsstand. As an animal lover with a special affinity for cats, Becca spends most of her free time with her many animals, her husband, Antonio Hector, and their emotional support animal, Sir Walter Underfoot. Who I understand has his own social media channels. So, <laughs> welcome, Becca.
1: Welcome, Becca. Thank oh, you so
2: much for having me.
1: That's awesome. So we have a, a cat with a social media channel. This is great. <laughs>
2: I love it. Well, I understand, Becca, that you're you grew up sort of knowing you're different, but not really fully understanding all of what that means for you. And I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit more about that
3: and and your experience. I think growing up, I sort of became aware, excuse me, aware that I was different somewhere about eight years old. Um, I think up until then I was was okay with the world that I sort of played by myself and, and did my own odd things and no one really cared and somewhere about eight years old Um, I think girls start to notice the other girls in the classroom and they start with their mean girl tactics and all of that fun stuff. And I think right about that time is when I became aware that I was different. That difference took a lot of different shapes and names and labels throughout my life, but none of them were correct. And that was a really big struggle. It made me feel like um, I was broken and like a one of a kind broken object that didn't belong on this planet. None of the labels that they gave me though, there were many I had, uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, um, lots of different areas, borderline and and things like that. And none of them really fit. The part about that that is unfortunate is that though they weren't right and they didn't fit, I was still medicated for them. So I spent most of my life from nine to my twenties taking medication that was um, not really, never really worked. It never did what it was supposed to do and never made me feel good. It usually made me feel unwell, but that was my life, right? I was like, this, this thing was a problem. So we go to the doctor, the doctor gives us the pill. We we trust the doctor and their information. We take the pill. Right. So that was pretty much my cycle and the pill wouldn't work. I would be uncomfortable. We'd go to a new doctor. And it was just that right over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, Once I became an adult, You know, I sort of got into college and and college was a better scenario for me. It was it just worked better for my brain. And so I succeeded in college where I never succeeded in high school or middle school or any of that. I had been a school refuser most of my life and and not gone to school um, because I didn't need to. Whenever I went, if I had to take a test, I had no problem. Take the test, do fine. The being there was an anxiety trigger for me. And that wasn't understood at the time. And I was called, you know, I was given school phobia as a a diagnosis. I was given all kinds of odd diagnoses my whole life. But when I got to my twenties, I realized that my life was mine to make decisions about. And I had been kind of I was done with the medical profession. Um, I really was, I had no trust. I had no faith not in any adults around me or in any of these so-called people you could trust your authority figures, right? There was no trust. So it was um, my choice and I decided that I was done. Like no one was going to be able to figure out what this thing was. And I was clearly this broken object that just needed mm-hmm. to kind of survive out in the world. And I was tired of going to doctors for that. So I just stopped going and I didn't trust the psychological profession anymore. I, in my kind of twenties, I tried really hard to do all the supposed two things that we're all supposed to do. Supposed to meet someone, get married, have a house, all that fun stuff we're supposed to do, Um, have a career, go to college, right? All of those, those check boxes. And I tried to do all of those things, but I struggled in employment. which is not uncommon, I know now, but I was struggling then, right? It was 13 different jobs in 15 years. The longest I was ever at a job was about a year and a half, and that was about it for me. So, And we're talking about huge variations in jobs, from commercial construction to being a vet tech to being a bartender, right? So wow. every, all of these different skill sets, um, but, but I couldn't kind of stick it out. So that was sort of my adulthood struggle, was kind of figuring that out what was the turning point for you? Yeah, I was well, By the when I was 33 years old, I did my last job, I did that 13th job. Um, And in that moment of sort of I was asking for what I now know is called an accommodation, I was asking for for kind of my schedule to be adjusted because it wasn't working for me. And I was working, I was closing both weekend nights. And as a shorter female, closing a bar at, you know, four o'clock in the morning by yourself on the weekend is not easy. Um, and so I was asking if I could have you know one of the weekend nights but not both but because I wasn't the senior person they weren't going to give that to me because the person above me wanted the weekend off right and I remember in that meeting the moment that my brain kind of cracked I remember when I realized that they weren't going to accommodate me and there was no real reason for it there was no like um, real other than this person wanted their weekends off right and so In that meeting, I felt like I heard my brain crack. And I remember at one point I had just said, like, it's all right, never mind, don't worry about it, and walked out of the room and walked out of the bar and went home and climbed into my childhood bed and didn't get out for three years. So it was like I had tried everything I could think of at 150%, all of these different jobs, and nothing was working. And if I can't figure it out, why do I need to suffer through all of this, right? So I just gave up. And I am an only child of a a single mom. And so um, I spent those next three years very suicidal, with suicidal ideations. Um, But I never did anything about it because I couldn't imagine my mom finding my body in her house. Like, I just couldn't fathom that. So instead, I kind of was a breathing dead person for three years, just really didn't leave the house, nothing, and just was waiting to die. And eventually, I'd had sort of migraine issues my whole life. And um, they always told you if your migraines change, you know, journal it, tell somebody, it could be anything, blah, blah, blah. So, since nine years old, I was sort of like lived in fear of a brain tumor that was going to come from somewhere. My migraines changed and I was having some smells that I could smell, but nobody else could smell, that they had no rhyme or reason. I journaled about them, all of that. And I knew that I needed to go and deal with it, but I don't like going to the doctor and I had no trust and I never wanted to go back. And so, and at this point, I was in the house and not leaving. So I went to Wikipedia and WebMD and said, um, and in searching for the possibilities that I could have a brain tumor, I found sensory processing disorder. And that was a really familiar kind of concept to me. I was like, well, I know I sort of always talked about how light was painful for me, but everyone sort of blew me off about it that that can't be light can't be painful. And that's not how it works. And so I thought that was really interesting. And at the bottom of that article was, you know, Asperger's syndrome. So I clicked on it. That moment of my life is very much like the top of a roller coaster. Like when you go off a roller coaster and you're sort of free floating in that moment, your knees are kind of like unlocked and your stomach's in your throat and all of that jazz. It felt like that because it was like reading my own biography on Wikipedia. Mm. And I knew I found the thing, the thing that had sort of been this issue my whole life and I didn't want to mess it up. So I sent my mom a link via email. I didn't tell her I didn't want to influence her decision. I didn't say anything or preface it. Um, And about three days later, she read her email and she came into my room and said, you found it. Where can we go? Where should we go? What do you want to do about it?
2: It sounds like that was really life changing for you.
3: It was super validating.
2: So what is autism. I mean, I, you know, for those who are listening and don't really understand, I mean, I I raised a child that was diagnosed with Asperger's at nine. So I'm familiar with some of it. But it's still for many people, very, very new. Maybe they've heard the term, but they don't really fully understand what it's like from the inside out. So I'm wondering if you can just, you know, explain what autism really is.
3: Sure. Well, the thing about autism is it is kind of newish, right? And and when we think about it in the scheme of research and medical literature and stuff like that, it is relatively new. We're still learning a lot about it. Um, We're getting better. We're learning more. We know more. We do better. And that whole scenario is happening. But autism at its very core is very simply a filtering system. So I, I talk about it a lot that way because explaining the real medical side of it is confusing and we don't know all those answers yet. We do know that it's about 85 to 90% genetic. Um, there are some other factors that play in there, but no, I will tell you right now, off the bat, vaccinations do not cause autism. That is a myth. The man who made that a myth killed himself. <laughs> so let's be real. It's not, it's not true. And basically it means that um, there are some pretty, um, I want to say, I guess, standard, um, connections that the brain is supposed to make as it grows and people with autism make different connections. Our, our neurons connect in a different way. We have different pathways, some that work really, really well as alternatives and some that stink as alternatives. It depends on your autism and your brand of autism, what challenges you have. Everyone on the spectrum is different, um, because of that. Cause it's just genetics, right? It's just a roll of the dice. When I think about it from the inside out, I think about it as a filtering system because it is literally the way that I process everything out in the world. Like I can't take my autism off. I can't, you, you know, stand on it or carry it separate. It is, it is a part of my being, right? It's the way that my brain is connected and it's the way that I process the world. So it's literally the filter through which um, I process everything. I dream in autism, I sleep in autism, I eat with autism, right? All of it is happening, right? It is just a part of who I am. Because it is so um, different for each one of us and all of us look so different, that has been the struggle point for, I think, the majority of the world is that you can't see autism. There's no look to autism. There's mm-hmm. no, you know what I mean? There's, and we're all so, so varying. Some of us have so, really external support needs. Some of us have internal support needs. It's, it's just such a variety um, because I think what we'll see is that so much of the population um, really is a different thinker. You
1: know well, I mean? and that's, but that's going to be the case for, for, for everyone, whether autistic or not. I'm, what I'm, I'm really wanting to, to, to unpack a little bit is the idea of how, is the that this this diagnosis taking such a, a predominant place? Like in in classrooms, I was just hearing that that uh, that teachers were talking about having you know an, an autistic child you know once every few years or whatever, and now you know a large percentage of the classroom every year is
4: mm-hmm.
1: that diagnosis. And so I'm 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 trying to figure what 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 have we learned about Uh, you know, the causal effects. Is this something that's diet related? Is there something in the water now basically that we're
3: running? What what happened for us is that we got better, right? Our diagnostics got better. Our testing got better. Our information sharing got better Our educate, you know, with technology we were able to share information a lot further. Um, And so when your diagnostics get better, you catch more people, right? And so that number grows and what we were looking at back in like say the 70s when i was born as autism is not what we see as autism today right we were looking particularly for non-speaking behavior problem boys that are white when we were looking for autism in the 70s we know now that's not true it is not a gender issue there are plenty of women on the spectrum and that took us a bit to catch up on there's still gender bias in our testing but we're working on that, so we're picking up more women, and that means that's a section of the population that wasn't being tested or counted is all of a sudden being tested and counted. That's a large number of people, the women, right? Um, the females on the spectrum. And then, of course, we are coming to understand that it is not an issue of race. And so we are testing people who are have limited income, right? And who are maybe not from America and live in our country, right? And so our numbers in our country in particular Um, are going up because of our testing, because our testing is getting more accessible, because our testing is getting better. We still sit in an unfortunate place, which is that testing is not covered by insurance. So a lot of people aren't counted in those numbers because they can't afford to be. As an adult on the spectrum, going out and paying $6,000 for a diagnosis that gets you nothing um, isn't really worth it right most of us we have an 85 percent unemployment rate on the spectrum so most of us are unemployed or underemployed and because of that spending six thousand dollars on a diagnosis is unrealistic right but it's not covered by insurance or medicaid or mer- medicare right you have to pay out of pocket so, for a diagnosis.
1: So in terms of once you are diagnosed is there is there benefit then do you is, is as an there-
3: adult no um as an adult i can tell you that there aren't services or supports you don't get um You don't automatically get SSDI. You still have to apply for it. And most of us get denied five out of 10 times. There's still no understanding that autism is a lifetime condition, that at 18, it doesn't disappear. So it's not a childhood issue. It's a lifetime issue. When you are sitting in that position as an underemployed or unemployed autistic adult who would very much like to have that affirmed for them in some diagnostic way, you can't justify it. There's, you're not going to, you're not going to reap anything or get enough benefits from spending that $6,000 at this moment. That's not worth it. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the adult community, we very much validate self-diagnosis. There's really just not an opportunity for enough of us to go out there and get it.
2: What does that process look like? I mean, I, I remember you know like i said my my son was different from birth and it took us years to understand and going through all kinds of different diagnosis and things and it did come down to me i i happened to be speaking with a colleague and describing my son and she went here's what it is here's the resources go look this up and you know it it was a self-diagnosis process at first and then i took that to the doctor and because he was young,
3: that works still. For, you know, it worked when mm-hmm. your child is nine. Is at nine right. they can get IEPs. At nine they can get services. Right. At nine,
2: it they, was it was very yeah. helpful. But not everybody understands what you know. Because at the same time, because it was self-diagnosis, it was also challenged. Oh, you don't of know course. what you're talking about. So, what I'm curious, what are some of the things that you found? Because some of the traits, it's like, well, maybe everybody's on the spectrum, but there are other traits that are very unique and specific. So what well, does that look like?
3: Okay, so because it's a developmental disorder, which means that um, – the, we develop at a different pace than what is the norm, quote unquote, right? So some of us are delayed developmentally. Some of us are ahead developmentally in some areas, behind in others, right? Um, and so because of that, they're looking for a really broad set of, of symptoms. It is extremely helpful for doctors. And because they were looking at children for so long, they've gotten really good at identifying people under 18, that's the specialty, right? And so those tests, that's our starting point for testing in adulthood, is that it are the standard tests that they use for children. The problem is that we all look different by the time we get to adulthood. By the time we get to adulthood, we have learned coping mechanisms like how to fake eye contact, like how to prescript ourselves for situations, like how to um, mask ourselves and how to pass for neurotypical. Um, and we've all learned those skill sets, and though we pay the price, for those coping mechanisms. They are so ingrained in who we are when we sit in front of a doctor, if they're looking for a childhood representation of autism, they're not gonna see it. They're not gonna see the traveling eye contact. They're not gonna see the undiagnosed ADHD. They're not gonna see the the lack of social skills in an adult that you see in a child, right? Because we've had decades to practice and decades to copy everyone and mimic everyone so that we we've learned that when we're ourselves we're not accepted so we need to hide that version of ourselves and we can be that version of ourselves in very particular environments but we don't get to be our authentic selves all the time especially those of us that don't have a diagnosis those of us without a diagnosis are really guessing we have really no idea what we're doing but none of us are happy all of us are exhausted we've had multiple burnouts and meltdowns usually by the time we get an adult diagnosis. Many of us get it because we're in a mental facility for having some kind of issue. Um, and we do have now this really unfortunate, um, death rate where a good majority of us are dead by the age of 36. Um, And that's because the world doesn't know about us and doctors aren't prepared to treat us. And we struggle with making phone calls to the doctor and we struggle with understanding our body signals a lot and knowing when we don't feel good, what doesn't feel good particularly. Um, And a lot of us have then been traumatized by not being believed in our doctor's offices. So we aren't seeking medical help when we need medical help until it's to the point where we can't function at all. And usually by then it's too late to do something about it. Um, And the rest of us who don't fall into that category tend to fall into suicide.
1: I've got a question, Becca, that this, see, you're, you're describing so much of my life that, that I, that that I experienced (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I have, I have run into it. And it seems like, and I, I, I so appreciate the the opportunity to ask this question at this, at this moment. It's like, uh, because I, it's, it's a perfect reminder for me of when I'm, I'm feeling so much of that and I, and I don't want it to come across as any kind of diminishment or anything like that. But what, what I'm, I'm curious, what kind of spiritual practice you have found to be um, pre- prevalent or typical, or is there a spiritual practice prevalent or typical uh, of people who are considered autistic or do you have one? And, and what does that, have you experienced any kind of, of uh, benefit or grounding from being in these places where these doctors are saying these things and these, and these people are responding in these ways and these, these job uh, opportunities are going against you continually? And so whatever it is that, that you go through you know, in your life that, that just is too much, Is there a process that you, that your thinking allows or, uh, anyway, I've I've asked enough times there. (laughs)
3: Um, Well, the first half of your question about spiritual practice, I think is interesting. Um, It reminds me to remind you that autistics are human beings. We are all different, just like everybody else and so we all have different spiritual beliefs depending on how we were raised or what country we grew up in or that kind of stuff so um in terms of any kind of spiritual practice being dominant in within autism no um that's it's a human thing if you believe it you believe it if you don't believe it you don't believe it you know that's sort of uh um you know i think just how you're raised i personally don't really click with organized religion in any way shape or form it's something that never my logical brain never could grasp onto. I guess the spiritual side of personal development, if you wanna look at it that way, sort of the idea that kind of um, we're part of a a bigger picture, I guess is sort of what I I would subscribe to, that there's, there's a bigger energy out there than me or us. Um, but other than that, I, I don't, myself, I don't subscribe. I know plenty of autistics who do, plenty of autistics who go to church every Sunday, who, you know, but again, that's their humanness. That's, that's our humanness, right? We are all different in that way and what works for us. In terms of Thank kind you. of benefits of autism, um, we don't talk about that a lot, <laughs> but there are some. But right man um,
1: you're talking and about And you know I right I
3: point. actually really want to dive
2: into that more because <laughs> I think it's a beautiful piece of the conversation what gifts we all have to bring mm-hmm. and I need to interrupt because we need to take a short break here at the moment so I want to come back to that after our little break a uh, quick question for our listeners though how are you expressing your unique gifts and talents and voice with the world? We wanna hear your story and help you reach out to our worldwide audience. So visit riseandshineasone.com to learn more. And when we come back, you'll get to hear one of Mark's original songs, One Piece at a Time. It begins and ends with a child's voice reminding us how peace is really created. So stay tuned for more
0: In our changing world, how can you protect the self-esteem, confidence, and dreams of the children you love in just five minutes a day, even from a distance? To learn more about Uncle Mark's Best Indie Book Award-winning kids' book, his music, and resources to support families, visit truesunbeam.com. And if you're an author or musician with a similar mission, learn how to be a guest on the Rise and Shine radio show. Visit Uncle Mark at truesunbeam.com. Are you a woman who's tired of staying silent and people-pleasing at the expense of your own health, wealth, and happiness? Discover the roadmap to self-confidence and freedom in Ann Rising's international award-winning book, You, Rising, Reclaim Your Life, Live Your Purpose. And if you're an author whose nonfiction or memoir makes a powerful difference, you're invited to be a guest on the Rise and Shine radio show. For books, resources, and show details, visit Laurieannrising.com.
4: road to honor peaceful travelers who clearly see the life that lay in stone. store. We are building a bridge across the valley of shadows to reach the brave new world beyond the war. We are building a port in this harbor of freedom for only faith and love to turn the tide. As we build our new tomorrow One piece at a time Living one heart, one soul One way we'll all be whole One piece at a time Making one night and one day One part that's mine to play One piece at a time close the book on separateness as the pages start to burn In the heaven here on earth we've come to live While hand in hand we move beyond the violence we've learned To become the ones who've learned how to forgive The choir's been asking questions that have universal answers While the universe is awaiting our one song Rejoin within the music now, the child becomes a dancer to lead the way back home where we belong. Sharing one heart, one soul, one way we'll all be whole, one piece at a time. Living one love, one life, one way to make it right, one piece at a time. One soul, one way we'll all be whole One piece at a time Take one night and one day To claim the part that's ours to play One piece at a time One heart, one soul, one way we'll all be whole One piece at a time Make one move with one Choice for all mankind. One piece at a time. We've got one.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Rise and Shine, not just for Mornings Anymore. And that was One Piece at a Time by our very own Mark Olmstead. You can download this song and check out more of his music by visiting www.truesunbeam.com.
1: We're here today talking with Becca Laurie Hector about autism. And we were just actually in kind of a conversation. <laughs> I've, I've, you know, my, my personal experience or connection uh with it up until just recently um <laughs> I, I guess when i think of autism I, I think of rain man you know and and these uh this this image of someone who can you know has this all these metal capacities or a or a like an amazing pianist that is just you know like gifted from birth about you know musical genius and those kinds of things is the, is that is that a, a more of a typical kind of experience or there are the benefits of autism something that everyone just kind of discovers along the way or or does some have it not or how, what what what's your, I guess your-
3: let's start with stereotype most right. people especially of a certain age will reference rain man as mm-hmm. their first kind of media representation of autism however mm-hmm. Rain Man did not have autism. Rain Man yeah. had another neurological issue, but he was not autistic. Um, and so right out of the gate, mm-hmm. we're, we're in a stereotype and it's an incorrect stereotype. right? <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so we start there. Then we can um, talk about the Sheldons and we can talk about all of the other stereotypes out there. But what you'll see is that most of them were white males, which we know. Is a big issue, right? There's plenty of women on the spectrum and plenty of people of color on the spectrum. And then the other thing is that we're always kind of portrayed as like quirky, smart, computery people. Um, And then, you know, that that's what we're like, and we don't otherwise like to socialize with people. And so we're all this, this Sheldon out there living, right? Um, but I will tell you that I don't know personally anyone. oh, I know one person who likes computers enough to consider it a special interest. I don't know any autistic who does IT for a living, I know autistics who are in theater. I know autistics who are <clears throat> doing voiceover work. I know autistics who are doctors, lawyers, um, but I don't know any autistics that work in IT, which is really interesting. <laughs> and so it brings me to that whole point, which is that so far the world has not seen an accurate representation of autism in the media. There are some that I would say are close. There are movies worth seeing.
1: Yes, please. No. Yes, please. Like yeah, what? what
3: would you recommend? There's one film that I would recommend, it is called um, Keep the Change, and it's sort of an indie film, but I think you can still find it on Amazon, I believe, uh, but it's called Keep the Change, and it's all autistic actors in the film, and autistics helped to write the script for the film with the director. They were all on set and, and put the film together, and because of that, it has an authenticity that nothing else has. We don't hire autistics to play autistics in movies and TV right now, which means nobody's getting it right. When you start hiring autistics to play autistics, you'll start getting it right. When we start hiring disabled people to play disabled people, we'll start getting that right too. So right now, that's sort of my, my, my go-to film is that one. When I think about TV characters, um, the most accurate TV character that I can reference is Bones from the TV show Bones. However, she was never once described as autistic. (laughs) So we can't really claim her.
1: How about Monk?
3: Uh, Monk was never called autistic either. Neither was Sheldon. Not at that, well, you can see that at the time that all those shows came out, no, autistic was a bad word. Nobody wanted to use it, right? right? So they never claimed it. So we can't claim it. That's sort of where we're at in terms of media representation of autism.
1: Would would Monk be uh, like the behavioral... Aspects no. of his character be described as? No,
3: autistic. we can't call someone autistic unless they're actually autistic. So oh, okay. a lot of, like because we, we talk about how there are things that autistics will describe that we everyone says, oh, but we've all felt that or we've all right. We've all done. And then we get things like so everyone's a little bit on the spectrum. Well, no, mm-hmm. not every, everyone's not a little bit on the spectrum. You're either on the spectrum or you're not on the spectrum. And because those characters um, never claimed it and never did research and never had someone you know like a collaborator working on set. you can't really take the autism and just say you can say it looks like it might be maybe they took some autism ca- characteristics for him, but we can't really say that he's an autistic character right
2: so that's that's an interesting point you bring up because I have heard that and I've probably even said it where it's like, oh well, there's certain characteristics that. You know, I, I've done, but my son has done them more so or differently, or you know. So where is that, you know, that distinction diagnosis. between on the spectrum and not? I
3: guess
1: is the, is the diagnosis well, I'm not
3: a clinician, so I can't answer that in a really scientific way okay. about what the, how they you know what the line is in the test that they you know that they determine it. But you know, it's it's there are some things that we all have similar. That we, that we all struggle with on the spectrum, but to different degrees. So um, there are common symptomologies, but what happens is, so for example, I hate eye contact, I struggled with it as a child, I now can fake it, but it's still uncomfortable for me. So the symptom of eye contact being difficult is still there, right? I can, I can do it, I, but I've had it my whole life, it's just always. Now, other people may experience certain times when eye contact is uncomfortable for them, But eye contact is always uncomfortable for me. So that's the difference. People will talk, we talk about our sensory differences the most because those are the wires that seem to really get like tangled up and reordered a lot for us. And so many of us um, struggle with sensory sensitivities in one form or another. I myself struggle with all of my sensory sensitivities. For some people, it's just smell. For some people, it's just light for some, you know, that kind of thing. But what happens is that because we don't look at it in degrees or we haven't looked at it in degrees of challenge up until now, we see a lot of missing pieces. We see a lot of people who are missing the diagnosis because they're not looking the way that they should be looking. So what we're finding out is that sensory is a common thread. What your sensory looks like is the thing that's up for grabs. Uh, Social communication issues, everyone's got them. We all have it to different degrees. Mm -hmm. So that's how we diagnose it. When we look at it now, what the books say now, they've now (coughs) divided us into levels of autism. Level one, level two, and level three. And that defines us by how much external support we need. So for example, I would be level one because I don't require external support for my challenges. Most of my challenges are internal challenges and therefore I don't require external support. And the world now judges us that way. So if you can see my autism, I have severe autism. If you can't see you can't experience my autism, then I have mild autism. That's how it's looked at right now. But that's not accurate. So I know some of
2: the okay. things my son struggled with, and I'm I'm just wondering if you know it's unique to his situation or if it's a common piece. Um, a couple of things, you know, were were the social cues. He couldn't read facial, ex, you know, facial expressions or and he really didn't hear voice intonations. So there was a flat affect. Um, mm-hmm. that, he, that was difficult for him and, and part of the counseling and therapy he received was teaching him a, what certain facial expressions meant. There was also mm-hmm. a, a black and white thinking. So there was a time in his life when he was young where, you know, if a friend of his got mad at him, he wouldn't see it as, oh, this is a temporary thing. He would see it as mm-hmm. that person now hates me and they're never my, going to be my friend again. It was an all or mm-hmm. nothing piece, which mm-hmm. makes it very, very difficult in relationships and mm-hmm. just to be a human being and move through situations. Um, are those things that are also common in the rest of the
3: community that you yeah. see? Or? So again, those three things are also just like sensory and the others right we all have them to some degree it's how much you are impacted by each piece of this puzzle right how much are is your social being challenged versus how much maybe you're um maybe you're totally face blind right we have a lot of folks on the spectrum who are face blind not that they don't recognize facial expressions they don't recognize faces period. Right. And so imagine going through the world like that. Right. And so there's different, there's different degrees of each one of these kind of core symptomologies that we talk about. Um, And so do, I think that, the black and white thinking is across the board. And what happens is you, you live a certain way with black and white thinking. Um, and then of course, as you get older, you find out the world is never black and white, right? It's never as black and white as you want it to be. And so you learn to make concessions and you start setting up your own rules for how things should be. The thing with the autistic brain is we, we because we think in black and white, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. There's, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And that can get us in trouble. Because we think there's only one way to go about doing something, or we think that, and if that way doesn't work, we think that's it, right? And so it, it can compromise our ability to see the world, even as adults. Um, and we're, if we are past the point of having struggles in our relationships, but we're still having struggles because of that black and white thinking, because we, um, we've pictured the perfect job for ourselves. So if that almost perfect job comes around and there's one thing that doesn't match our list, well, we ditch it instead of going, well, wait, this job is 95% perfect. That becomes an issue in adulthood. And though they, it plays out differently. When we are diagnosing children, they have different issues. They can't articulate their needs as well. They don't have the vocabulary yet to talk about certain things. They don't have the life experience to talk about things yet. Um, and so we see a lot of that, those struggles much more outwardly than in, in kids, like until about 16, 17. And then beyond that, adults learn to hide it. We learn to hide our difference. Um, we very much live in a world right now that seeks a sameness as though it's a reward as though the closer we get to sameness, the more reward we will reap. But that's not true. And until our world stops seeking same as the the epitome of greatness, we're not going to kind of evolve and and because that's how the world around us sees us at like difference, not good, difference, bad, bad difference, 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 right? That's how you feel about yourself.
1: It's insane actually and and i'm I'm just really wondering if. Um, are, are you working towards supporting uh, kids in the early stages of development, perhaps in some way, to uh, to, to help reprogram the brain? From uh, we're up until age seven. What I've, I'm, I'm understanding is that the subconscious is being like being set up for the the, the to to reprogram and, and pattern the rest of our lives out of what we record, basically, our, and are our downloading as our input up until age seven. Mm
4: -hmm. And
1: so what it seems like to me um, would be an, an awesome opportunity would be to, to with as early recognition as possible of, of some of these characteristics or whatever to have a,
3: but that's uh, sort of, that. there's two things wrong with approaching it that way. First of all, it's the assumption that the way of being as an autistic person is not acceptable. It's not okay. It's not an, an alternative choice. It's just not okay. Everyone has to not be that way. So we have to re- rewire them immediately. Right. So they can be the same like all of us. Right? So I, I think so actually
2: I'm, I'm going to interrupt you because I, I hear where you're coming from and agree with you, but I think there was a subtle misunderstanding that I want to, correct, because I don't think it was about rewiring the individual so much as there's a belief system. So when the outer world is approaching that child in a way that you're behaving wrong because you're different, if we can help the child understand their differences and develop beliefs where their differences are positive, as opposed to changing the child, it's helping them reframe their experience so that they're developing a well, belief reframing system. Well, supports- and
3: rewiring are two very different things. Yes, rewiring they are. <laughs> right? You don't want to reprogram someone away from wh- who they are, right? Um, right? And teaching them perspective, teaching them to reframe where they're at is a different skill set, right? That's different. You rewire somebody, you do that to them. If you're asking them to reframe, then you're asking them to do this for themselves, right? And that's different. Takes on it. We have up until this point, um, one of the most um, incorrectly used and abusively used techniques for kids is ABA. It's moderated and changed and kind of adjusted now that it's not quite so bad. But unfortunately, that concept of rewiring was exactly the thinking that was being used. What is ABA? ABA is applied behavioral analysis. um, And basically, it's dog training for humans. Basically what it is is we want a certain behavior from you and we will give you rewards if you provide that behavior for us because we have determined that it is the correct behavior or you don't do, comply and then you get punished right which is essentially dog training and the things that were used as reward and punishment were things like joy and our special interests and fun and you know things that make you an overall happy human being and were being used as reward and punishment. And then therefore people were kind of changing their children to be this this robot. You want this behavior from me. I want my special interest. Here's your behavior. Give me my special interest. That child has learned nothing about perspective, nothing about reframing, nothing about what they're struggling with, nothing about why they're even in this environment where they're being trained. Nothing is happening in a in a way that is providing them with skill sets that will make them a functional adult. All we're doing is training them to be a certain way so that everyone around them feels comfortable. We're teaching them to change for the comfort of those around them instead of changing for their own comfort. And that's a really, really sick way to treat children. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it, I guess maybe I need to hear more about how that is how that's different. I mean, if a person is more... Uh, being accepted and and what they want to is what they want is to belong. They want is to be, to feel. If like they want part to belong, of, a lot if, of
3: us don't require a lot of social, and social is pushed upon us that we must do a certain amount of social. Um, right. But I, if I go to the post office and I have to talk to the guy at the post office desk, that's enough social for me. I'm good. I'm an introvert. I don't need that. Um, but as a child, I was forced to go to parties and forced to be. Why? Because all children must go to their friends' parties and otherwise everyone will think I'm weird and make them uncomfortable. So I'll be uncomfortable for four hours at a party then so that you can all be comfortable. So the way instead of teaching that child, so say we'll we'll take it down to its basics, which is um word that's used often in schools or behaviors. Your behaviors are bad. So we need to change your behaviors. It's a behavior problem. That's what we use it for. Right. So here's a child in the classroom who maybe is struggling with something and for whatever reason um, cannot sit still in the classroom just cannot stay in that seat, cannot not wiggle in their chair, cannot not, right? And every day, it's a, it's a battle. Stop wiggling in your chair. Stop wiggling in your chair. Sit still, sit still, sit still. If you don't sit still, you can't go, to, to go outside to recess. If you don't sit still, you're not going to get your special toy. If you don't sit still, you have to eat lunch alone. If you okay. don't, right? And that's all we're doing. And no nobody's point. saying, why? Why can't this child sit still?
1: These days, we know, though, we know that these days what, what they're finding is that, that movement is a part of learning. And, right. and this-
3: but think about that's how recent. And so all of us that were living in the world before that thinking has come to be, right, that's not how we were treated.
1: Right. It, exactly. yeah. so,
3: so, so the adult all...
2: experience is very different than kids today. I mean, adults in their yeah. 30s, 40s, 50s and older had a very different experience and and relationship with the world growing up. And yeah. I know one of the things you mentioned quite a bit is, is your relationship with animals. And I'm, I'm curious how... Because I saw that with my son, too, that animals were a huge comfort in so many ways. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about that piece, too.
3: Sure. I'd love to. Um, So animal connection is something that we as humans know is important for human beings. Now, finally, research is catching up with everything we know anecdotally and telling us that cat purrs are good for our blood pressure. And, you know, when you pet a dog, you, you know, you can be less stressed and all of this stuff. So we have the research now proving what we've known basically since we were cavemen, right? That animals are good to keep around and they make us feel good. Um, And that is, uh, I would say, doubled, if not tripled, for those of us on the spectrum, that need for animal connection. Um, And I think there is a couple of reasons for it. First of all, for, me- for most of us, because when you socialize with an animal, they don't require eye contact. In fact, they look at eye contact as a challenge and it creates fear and aggression when you make eye contact with an animal. Right away, we're speaking the same language. Right away, our communication is the same and animals don't lie to you about how they're feeling they're feeling some way they will let you know don't pet me they let you know they want to be pet they let you know right there's no hidden agenda there is no secret being kept there's no gray passive aggressive talking around the topic it's just direct communication with that animal and that's it there's a sense of loyalty that comes with having an animal around you that human beings don't provide for one another There's a sense of honest connection with an animal that doesn't happen. And then, of course, there's all the physical benefits of it, right? The stuff that I was just talking about, the purring, the petting, sleeping with something warm, all of that stuff that we know now works for human beings overall. Of course, it also helps autistics because we are human beings. The things we're not seeing in terms of the animal connection and that we're not utilizing in terms of animal connection is using it as a strength for those of us on the spectrum. Our connection with animals is so um, real and so natural to us that it makes a great career choice. It mm. makes a great um, social lubricant. It does all kinds of ob- things for us, right? I have Sir Walter. Sir Walter is my rescue pup. We, I trained him to be an emotional support animal and I can't go anywhere with him if I don't feel like talking to people. If Mm -hmm. I go out with him, I am having a conversation about Walter. A, if I don't wanna talk to people, I can't go out with Walter and I know that. But B, if I do feel okay and up to talking to people, if I go out with Walter, I know what we're talking about. We're gonna talk about Walter and then we're gonna talk about their dogs and then we're gonna share our phone pictures and then we're gonna, right? (laughs) Because that's how it's gonna go down. And that is a positive social experience that I can then build upon, right? I can create friendships out of that. I can create camaraderie. I can create community for myself out of that. And then maybe I like it so much, I become a dog boarder or I do grooming or I'm a pet sitter or maybe I become a vet tech or veterinarian.
2: But this is so beautiful, but we are getting to the end of our show. You have been so incredibly helpful and eye-opening and we are immensely grateful for all that you have shared in your insight and I'm hoping we have the chance to do this again because I feel like we just scratched the surface but I also know that you do offer a course and additional information for those who are really needing and wanting that support give you a chance to just 30 seconds or a minute or, or you know just share about that yeah
3: well when I first started out I was just a general autism advocate but in my Last few years I've really dedicated myself to the adult autism community. We talked about some of those reasons, but there's just no supports and services out there. So I decided to create something in the void. Not saying that what I created is the best thing in the whole world, but it's something. It's something, it's the first domino to start everyone else creating stuff in the void. What what I've done is create a course that's it's really it's cured for autistic adults. It really works best for those of us who are diagnosed late in life. Um, and really have to unteach ourselves all the things that the world programmed in our heads, and then reprogram ourselves. Um, and often we do that with our lives as a whole, which is what I did as well. And so basically, I, I went on a personal development journey. But in personal development world, there isn't stuff for autistic people. It's just for people. And most people are neurotypical, so it's mostly written for neurotypicals. So what I did was my autistic brain, um, and as an, a person with an autistic brain, I see patterns. And I read through all of those fun books, The Secret That's Not a Secret, The Four Agreements, all of that stuff. And I found the patterns, right? They're all different metaphors, but they're teaching the same lessons. And I found the lessons and I took them out and I redesigned them for the autistic brain, meaning I took out all the extra. I took out all the metaphors and all the gray area and all the whatever. It's not just the meat and potatoes course, it's just the meat. It's, It's really just that. And so it works for the autistic brain. That's what we do. I do three units of personal development teaching. I give people kind of how to break down and the basic skill sets that they need. Then we talk about the skill sets you need to get to your goals once you've learned how to set them up. And then the skill sets you need to maintain that life that you're going to build. Like, what do you need then? That's um, awesome. And- so where, where can they find that to learn more? Uh, they can head to my website. It's becca l o r y dot com. Everything is on there. I put it all in the same place. Social media, my YouTube channel, my course, my writing—it's all there. Awesome. Wonderful! Thank, thank, you thank you so much! So much. Wow! For
1: all those, all the amazing work and the and supporting people. Um, but before we go, we want to remind you that Lori and and I are on a mission to create a world that works for everyone and uplift voices that aren't typically heard. So, if you are someone, or perhaps you know an author like Becca, a musician, or an innovator who's challenging these old paradigms and opening hearts and minds. We want to help you reach our, our, our world and then through our worldwide audience, uh, you can make a difference. So please visit us at riseandshineasone.com to learn more.
2: And thank you again, everyone, for being with us today. And remember, until next week,
1: wherever you are, there's always time for remembering to... Rise
2: and shine.
1: And shine. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Have a great week, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to Rise and Shine. Please join Lorianne Rising and Uncle Marg Olmstead for another great show next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, keep rising and shining
4: joy sound of the love sound of the life sound of the joy
0: sound